Okay, quick note, if you're on uh, the side of the room, especially here on my right side, um, you may want to shift. And so kindly, uh, people have left a nice open spot right here, but there's some stuff that's going to go up on stage that you may miss. So uh, I would encourage you to shift over here. There's plenty of space. Now's a good time to do it. Well done. Well done. First service really struggled. They really did with that. And so uh, that's, a, that's, a hard, that's a hard step to make, I know. Um, <clears throat> um, all right, so as we're jumping into 1 Samuel 17, um, as we've referenced a few times, um, the timetables are tough. If you've been reading ahead or reading along, you have faced some of these as you said, like, wait a minute, didn't, didn't he just meet David? Or how does he not know who he is? Or how does this timetable fit in? Or well, he's really happy with David, and four verses later he's trying to kill him. Like, help me understand this. Keep in mind, we've moved into a section of 1 Samuel that I believe what's actually happening here is we're introducing David, and now the writer of 1 Samuel is now entering a section of 1 Samuel that is, now, here's a bunch of stories about David. It's, it's not meant to be chronological. It's not. They're independent little stories that each tell a different moment from his life, probably that's famous, that people know this story. Like, oh, I, I've heard this story, or I know this story, but they're told in a way that's meant to allow them to be told independently of each other. You don't have to do them all, probably for the sake of teaching children, which is exactly what we've done with them. In fact, <clears throat> that's one of the challenges that we face with this passage, is that many of us have grown up with it, whether it's the VeggieTales version, or the Flannel Graph version, or the whatever version, and very likely we've heard things taught that are probably less than, I don't know, the correct emphasis of this passage. So um, I want to make sure we discuss for just a moment to remind you way, the way we try to do this here. It's our goal, my goal, that every one of you, every member of this church, every member is a minister, and that every member would be able to handle the Word of God rightly, on your own, independently. That's a skill set that every Christian should develop. And in today's world, there's no good reason why we couldn't. This art and science of studying the Word of God well is called hermeneutics. That's the study, the art and science of studying the divine scriptures. And one principle, I'm not going to go long here, but one of those principles has to do with the genre. What type of literature are we reading at any given time? And it's very important because if you get it wrong, you can make a lot of mistakes. Here's an example. So my wife, uh, my sweet wife, Ginger, left me a love note the other day um, at our house, hanging on the fridge. This was it. Um, and so as I, as I was trying to figure out, like, what is she saying about her love for me here? Like, what is the chicken broth referencing? And, and what am I supposed to, like, gather from the strawberries and the oatmeal? And honestly, I took this offline. I don't even know what kefir is. But the, uh, uh, like this... <clears throat> Like, you can imagine all the mistakes I could make. Like, I could make some very big mistakes trying to understand Ginger's love for me from this love letter. Why? That's not a love letter. That's why. I've got the wrong type of literature. This is a clearly a grocery list. And so the thought of making that mistake, and that's as big a mistake. If you take 1 Samuel, for example, and you try to treat it like a 21st century Western narrative... You're going to get frustrated, and you're going to get confused, and you're going to reach some really bad conclusions. So recognizing this is a type of literature, this historical account of this man David and this time in the kingdom under the rule of Samuel, that it's told in a series of, of very memorable stories. And this, this section especially are standalone stories. 
And so when you try to figure out where they fit, it's not always a great use of time. Um, and so I want to I wanna warn you against that um, when we jump in here. <coughs> now, that, for example, this section in 1 Samuel 17, it's amazing the things that people will teach and then found it in the passage here. Like, they spend a whole lot of time teaching about what the five smooth stones represent, for example. And, and that's just a mistake. Now, you may come up with something fun or cool that the five smooth stones mean. Good for you. That's great in your life. However, the five smooth stones in this passage represent five smooth stones. That's it. There's, there's nothing else special about that. Like, that's its, that's its purpose. And in fact, though, it is vital and, and it's a wonderful thing that we are inspired by the faith and courage of David. I love that. I love being inspired by the heroes of old, whether they're biblical or not. I think that, and even of now, I think that's fascinating. And uh, I really like it. Uh, Rich Mullins has a song um, in which he talks about this. Did they tell you stories about the saints of old? He sings stories about their faith. They say stories like that make a boy grow bold, and stories like that make a man walk straight. And I, I, I love that. I think that's significant. However, the purpose of this passage, I believe for us today, is also not to just teach us that we should have courage and faith like David. I think that's there. But is the reminder to us that there is a sovereign God, there is a king, and he faces the things for us. The battle is his. And that's, I think, the main thing we're supposed to walk away from here, is that this, there, there is an amazing God behind this story. And, and that's, I think, the idea. There is a king, he conquers his enemies, he wins the battles, and we get to know that king, and David is merely an example, an illustration of that king. He is a servant of that king. He isn't that king, he's a servant of that king, and we can worship that king ourselves and depend on him. So we're going to keep wrestling through all of this and to see how powerful it is that God works here. Now, um, Paul, over the last couple of weeks in chapter 16, I believe, took up the horn of oil well and taught this and delivered it to us, anointed us with the truth that he found there in Scripture. Uh, he referenced that as an epic phrase, and so I'm going to start putting it in when I'm talking about preaching now. So um, uh, applying it and teaching God's Word. There may be that we could somehow shoehorn this story somewhere in there, that maybe what's going on um, in 1 Samuel 16, 18, when Saul says, hey, somebody go find me. You remember Saul's confused. He has this spirit that is tormenting him from God, and he's looking for a solution. He, of course, being Saul, he doesn't know what to do. Luckily, there's a, a servant who has some insight here, and the servant says, I'll go find someone. They, or his Saul says, go find someone. The guy comes back and says, in verse 18, one of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. At the time, you read that and you go, how could he possibly know all that about this guy? Like, this is, this is a kid at this stage. What's going on here? Well, it may be <coughs> that this is that person saying, whoever this person is, coming back to Saul and saying, hey, guess what? You remember that kid, David, who killed Goliath? Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, that's going to show up at some point in this chapter. The songs may have already given it away to you. Uh, great song selection this morning as we already sang about the fact that God's going to deliver. Uh, but this, this picture that, that maybe what he's saying is, hey, that David guy who killed Goliath, that kid, he plays. Maybe it's that simple. Maybe that's what was going on there and maybe that's where it fits. I don't know. Um, Alistair Begg really said, he, he, really, he says he really wonders who struggles the most when we study this passage. Those for whom it's new 
that you're like, listen, of course I know there's such a thing as David and Goliath. I've heard it referenced for a million uh, uh, football games. And so I know that like when one team fights another team, the underdog, this is a David and Goliath story. Or maybe you've read um, Gladwell's book about David and Goliath. Um, again, uh, if that's all you've got, you're in for a treat. Maybe you say, maybe like, oh no, again, I've been raised all my life with this. Who's got the biggest disadvantage in unpacking this story? I guess we'll see as we go. Starting in chapter 17 in verse 1, we get to set the board the same way the Bible passage does, which is kind of fun for us as Westerners. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Socha, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Socha and Ezekah and Ephes Damin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. Now, you just heard, most of you probably just heard nothing. Um, I could have said, and they went to Narnia, and then they were in Wonderland, and they traveled on to the top of Mount Everest. And, and it would mean the same thing. Because we don't know the geography very well, and so being good Jewish students, I want us to get a sense of what's being laid here for us as the groundwork is being laid for what's going on. And so first, let me show you the map. All the map nerds love this part of it. <coughs> Here's the map. And so this is, this is the five Philistine cities. Remember, they're on the coastline. The Philistines lived on the coastline. And this is the coastline, the five Philistine cities. The people of Israel lived in the mountains over here, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Gibeah, this area right here. And where they typically fought is in what's called the Shephelah, which is this area here. We'll talk more about that at other times. Um, we talked about it a lot under Samson um, way back when. And so that's where that's going on. So you can see a perfect place for them to fight would be as this army comes here, and this army comes here, and they meet right here at Ezekah and Soka at the Valley of Elah. Next picture. So as you zoom in a little bit, you can see there's this riverbed um, that runs, and nowadays it's a dry creek bed that this creek bed that runs through here. You can see Azekah, you can see Soka, and you can see probably where the Israelite army would have been. Some people place them here, and they're fighting across here, but this is also works fine. And the Philistine army is there. This is a real place. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't Wonderland. This isn't Mother Goose Land. This is an actual spot. This, is, this place is, there is such a place on the planet. Um, the next picture, this is my mom actually sitting up on the fortress of Azekah, I don't need the laser pointer for this part. Um, uh, the, the standing up on the, on the I'm going to point at every, anyway, so the, the, she's up on the top. This part's not bad. This is the Valley of Elah down here. So she's overlooking from Ezekiel, the Valley of Elah down here. And you can imagine the Israelites being somewhere over here and the Philistines being on the other side, right? I have one more. That shows you this is four total strangers down in the valley of Elah, right there. We are, we are right there in the valley. It is a real place. You could go see it today. This is what it looks like. It is a field in a valley with a little creek that runs through it just like 3,000 years ago. Now, I'm sure it's higher or lower in elevation because the earth changes in 3,000 years, but the same general spot. We are standing there within a few hundred yards of where David and Goliath fought. Um, we'll be going back, Lord willing, next June. You can start saving your pennies now. Um, we'd love for you to come. So uh, there came out from the camp of the, of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits as a, and a span. Here we go. Um, some people, some of the more ancient copies and others, have it at four cubits and a span. 
So at that point, if it's four cubits in a span, Goliath is between six and a half and seven and a half feet tall. That's tall. I'm going to show you in a minute how tall that is. Um, there's no doubt that that's tall, especially when allegedly, this is one of those numbers that they throw out there that I'm like, how would you possibly know that? But the claim is that people of, the men of Israel 3,000 years ago averaged five foot three inches tall. That that was the average height. Again, I don't know if they found like old basketball rec team records. Like I don't, I don't know how they, how they know that. There's not a lot of bones left over from 3,000 years ago, but somehow they're claiming that is five foot three inches. If that's right, then yes, a six and a half foot tall person would seem like a giant. Because as we know, the term giant is a relative term. Let me show you what I mean. Here's, here's the first picture. So this is uh, our own Jared Schuler with a young lady who came, went with us to Israel last time. You see she's holding a sling in her hand, by the way. Um, and uh, just in case he turns on her, right? And so... <laughs> This is showing you a relative term. Jared's like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, 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 something like that. I don't know exactly, but uh, I don't think he's here. But that's a, and then an 11-year-old girl who's probably be about David's size. We'll, we'll talk more about that next week. Um, so here's, but again, this is a relative concept. Another picture. So these are giants, right? So this is, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno when they were young and in their prime. And they make that normal-sized person next to them look like a tiny person, right? I mean, he, they are giants. These are huge, scary men. But watch this. Next picture. There's Arnold Schwarzenegger again. Now he's between Wilt Chamberlain and, uh, and Andre the Giant. And he looks like the tiny person, right? He looks like the child in between them because... Relative, being a giant is a relative concept. He's, these are massive men who are seven-somethings, um, and they tower over Schwarzenegger, who we just a minute ago thought looked like a giant. This, this concept continues as we picture it. Um, I think it would be helpful maybe uh, to give a, a, like a, a physical visual that might be helpful here. Um, so my buddy Shaq... Um, so Shaquille O'Neal, you can get a good sense of how tall, uh, so Shaq's 7'2", almost exactly one foot taller than me, and he seems to tower over me. The thought of me having to, you know, wrestle with him, you'd be like, uh, I know where I'm betting. So this is a, like, this is, he's, he's uh, somewhat bigger than I am, right? So this is a, this is a key picture understanding the difference between cubits and spans and how that ends up being very tall. However, I don't think so. I think based on the armor, based on the, um, the weight of the things that Goliath carries, I actually think the six cubits and a span is a better um, probable interpretation. And so to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about six cubits and a span is we're talking about a man who's nine and a half feet tall. This would be unworldly, which I think is the exact picture. Especially when you imagine that the Philistines, that what the Philistines would do is they would spike out their beard. They wore headdresses with spiked out uh, feathers and fur on it. They create the image of a lion's head. They were terrifying people. They were the Viking pirates of their day, and, and no one wanted to cross them. And so this is now a nine and a half foot tall Viking pirate whose hair brushes the rim of a basketball goal when he's standing flat footed under it. And if he was fighting someone like me, all of a sudden, Shaq doesn't seem like he's got much of a chance either. 
This is a huge giant of a man, and that's how we're introduced to him. That's where it starts. Could it be that he's just six or seven feet tall? Of course that's possible. That's a correct reading. But it is fascinating that the author of the scripture introduces him by his name, where he's from, and how tall he is immediately. This is the key signature of him, is how huge he is. Continues to describe him. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. <coughs> he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Again, that's about 125 pounds. His armor weighed 125 pounds. Again, context. Context is medieval armor, um, a medieval plate mail, that would weigh about 65 pounds. So a full suit of armor in the medieval era was about 65 pounds of metal. His was 125 pounds. Modern day firefighter gear can weigh as much as 75 pounds. Um, again, 125 pounds is the weight of his armor, 50 pounds more than that. It's intriguing that a few years ago, in 1962 now, the Kafar Monash Horde was discovered in the region of Philistia on the coastal plains of Israel. One of the things they found um, was a set of scales. Can you show this? A set, a set of bronze scales. And they're confused by them because you would think normally, the normal assumption of the archaeologist at first, and what was reported at first, was that these were pieces of armor. That this was scale armor, which is exactly what the Bible describes here. That, that Goliath wore, um, would have been maybe head to toe, but certainly neck, probably to knee, bronze scale armor. The problem is they're now really wrestling with this because these are really too large to be for a normal suit of armor. And so they're not really sure what they would be. I know. Um, I, I have an opinion as well. And so uh, it, it's, that's, we're going to see another example of this. Listen to this. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. So again, anybody ever used a 10-pound sledgehammer? Now put that, to that 10-pound sledgehammer, 15 pounds now. Put it out the end of a spear and imagine trying to use that, right? We don't know what a weaver's beam is actually referencing. Is that how thick the spear was? Was that how long the spear handle was? It's hard for us to know because those aren't, uh, there's no standard for weaver's beams. Um, but there was one gentleman who tried to make a, a recreation of it. And that's what he ended up with, um, was something like this, which it's hard to imagine a human being who's only six feet tall using that. You would need to be monstrous to use a spear like that. So that's, I think that's part of it. Intriguingly, in the Kafar horde, they also found, the Kafar Monash horde, they also found spearheads, giant spearheads. So down in the corner where E would be if it was labeled is the size of a normal spearhead. The ones at the top, at the very tip top that are barely on screen, those are normal spearheads. So what's been decided, um, again, these were found in the coastal region of Israel and they're bronze, the correct era, the correct place for there to be these giant spearheads. And they said they decided, what the archaeologists decided is that these spearheads are clearly ceremonial because no one could ever use a spear that had a spearhead that big. Make your own conclusions. All right, so here's what happened. He comes out wearing these things, and he, by the way, you can see those in Jerusalem as well. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw off of battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So the first thing that jumped out at me is that it's appropriate to, in the Bible, there's a place for asking for a man. It's right there, right? Goliath says, give me a man. If that's been your prayer, you're good. All right, so moving on. I don't know if that's the correct application or not. Um, so here comes, here comes this giant glowing in the sunrise. As the sun is coming up or as it's setting, here comes this giant. And by the way, he's got his shield bearer with him, it tells us. And I've decided, I think the shield bearer is there for comparison of scale. I, I think if, you know, that way if you're up on a Zika and you're going like, what is that coming out into the middle of the battlefield? That looks like a big dude coming out there. And what's, why does he have that little kid walking with him? Oh, wait, that's a grow, full grown man. Oh my gosh, that guy's huge. Like, I think that's what it's meant to create is like, he's got this like scale figure who wanders around with him everywhere um, for comparison. So I think that's what's going on. He looks like a raging lion. He would have been shining out like the sun as the sun reflected off his, you know, polished bronze armor, a terrifying person. And according to legendary sources, <coughs> this is not in the Bible, um, but there are exterior sources that are legendary that say that Goliath's whole speech also includes, because it, in the Hebrew it actually says, am I not the Philistine? Which is kind of you know, kind of bad to the bone when you think about it. Am I not the Philistine? Then it continues on to say, am I not the Philistine who slew Hophni and Phinehas? Am I not the Philistine who burned down the tabernacle? Am I not the Philistine who stole your ark and took it to our God Dagon? That that was included in this speech. He is making this as personal as he possibly can, being as offensive as he possibly can. This is a, he's calling for a mano imano fight, and the people of Israel are afraid. No doubt. Um, this was also a thing that struck me that I had never considered before is this, that, that maybe part of why the Philistines have drawn up for battle and the reason the Philistines are ready to fight and are willing to fight at this point is because Saul and Samuel are divided. Samuel, who they fear, and the God of Samuel, who they've learned to fear, is not here apparently. These aren't servants of Yahweh. These are servants of Saul. That's what Goliath says. So these are, you're, you're Saul's servants. One of you come fight me. The, the commentary hinted at this idea that the scariest thing that could have happened to Goliath right now would have been for Samuel to come walking out of the people of Israel. I had never thought about that. That if that old man had come wandering out from the midst of the people of Israel, you might have seen Goliath's, the blood drain from Goliath's face. Because that was who they feared probably in Israel. And they know that Saul and Samuel are divided. Again, the power of division is so potent. Everything we can do to fight against it is worthwhile. Um, so here we go. The, this, this main and obvious theme is what comes out. Verse 11, then when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Notice the doubling. I love when there's two, two things like that, dismayed and greatly afraid. It's bad enough to be dismayed. It's bad enough to be greatly afraid, but you're in real trouble when you're dismayed and greatly afraid. And the Hebrew here for dismayed is shattered, broken. They're already destroyed. Just as he comes out and speaks, they're shattered already. Um, it reminds me of when Jesus references that we should come to him when we are weak and heavy laden. It's, it's one thing to be weak, and it's another thing to be carrying a heavy burden. But when you're weak and carrying a heavy burden, that's bad. 
And Jesus is like, I hear you, come to me. So they are dismayed and greatly afraid. Fear, I want to comment on the fact that fear is a normal and healthy emotion for humans to have. It's a God-given thing. It's a gift from God. It's supposed to keep us out of trouble. Some of us have more or less of it, but that's what kind of its purpose. And there's a place for it. A, the biological effect of fear is a healthy thing. However, as adults and as, as, as human beings who have a soul, what we have to do is wrestle with, is there something really to be afraid of here, or is this merely emotion? Is there a threat, or is there merely fear? And, and then we have some decisions to make. So if it's merely fear, that's something that we probably need to push past. We need to understand the bravery or courage required to push past that. A great example of that that I love to use is like a zip line at a camp. When I was out at Pine Cove, it was great to use those as an example because no one ever got hurt on a zip line. It just didn't happen. Now, climbing up to the zip line, sure, sometimes people got hurt. Getting off the zip line, <coughs> sure, you could get hurt. Walking from one part of camp to the part of camp with zip lines. Yes, crisis moment. Driving from Dallas to Pine Cove, you're taking your life in your hands. But once you strap into that zip line, once you're strapped in, you almost can't hurt yourself if you try. <coughs> you are as safe as you've been since your mother's womb at that moment. You're not going anywhere. And yet people get so terrified because there's a 40-foot drop. What's going to happen? It's so scary. And all of those emotions build up, and you don't want to jump, and your friends are all counting down for you. Three, two, one, and you still don't jump, and, you're, and the people behind you are, are like trying to decide how much of a push am I allowed to give you at this point, because uh, the lines, and it, all this stuff's going on, <coughs> and all there is is fear. There's no threat. Perceived threat, but not a real threat. And for us to learn to push through those and recognize there's no actual threat here, there's only a, that's merely fear, there's not a threat. Now, what about when there is a threat, though? And that's a great example. So you go, oh yeah, that's Saul and those Israelites and their delusional fears. Uh, no. It's not delusional to be afraid of a nine and a half foot tall man who's been killing people since he was a child. That's not delusional. This is not a, a delusional fear. This is not an irrational fear. This is an extremely rational fear. I don't want to fight him. Neither do you. The idea of a 15 pound spearhead cutting through my body does not sound like a fun time. And that's what's going to happen to whoever goes and faces Goliath. At least it's what's always happened before. Then what do we do? Well, when we see the perceived threat, we've got a decision to make about the faith that we have then and who we trust in. Because sometimes God calls us in. There's times to avoid those fears. Healthy, normal. And there are times that God calls us into the fear and sometimes into the threat. We'll talk about that more. So, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, this is the key, I think, to this. Is what it's, the word there is, for here, is the word Shema. Now, Shema can just mean listen. Um, it can just have the further, but it can also have, and often does have the further depth of, make this about you. Hear me. It's where the, the passage gets the name, the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Fear is based on what you shma. If you listen to the truth, then the only thing we fundamentally will fear is the Lord. And those fears will be trusted. If we're trusting him and our fears will be healthy and founded in faith. Um, we used to play a game with our youth group where the kids would be blindfolded and they would have two squirt guns. Two kids would be blindfolded, have two squirt guns, and everybody else is giving them instructions. 
on how to shoot the other person. So they're wandering around, squirting, and they can't see anything, and they're like, no, shoot now, no, duck, no, go left, 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 all that stuff. <coughs> Usually, two things would happen. One, uh, somebody would figure out that if they start shouting instructions to the other guy and they give bad instructions, that's really effective. That if they start shouting at the opponent and giving bad ideas and giving bad thought, that's actually super effective. The teams that would win would be the teams that automatically caught on to this and they would gather up real quick and say, okay, only you speak and you listen only to this one person, no one else. Just listen to them. And the teams that did that always won. This is an important picture for us. The people of Israel, Shema, Goliath. That is who they're hearing. That's who they're hearing from. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Great question created. Who do we listen to? We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is John with the gospel. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Listen to lies, and what you will fear more than anything else is the rejection of other humans. That's what we hear fill our heads with. Goliath is clearly dangerous. He poses a very real threat. We've met the antagonist, and he is something special. He is the Philistine, a champion, a killer since he was a child, and a giant. So we need to meet our protagonist. There's an obvious protagonist in this story. We've met him before. He's also tall. He's known for being tall. He's a warrior king. That's who we expect our protagonist to be. Sure, Goliath is a killer, but Saul is no slouch. He's done plenty of killing. He's killed his thousands. He's raised armies and led armies into war. What is our handsome and tall king going to do in this moment? Verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. This is a total non sequitur to the story. Who's this David kid? Why are we reading about him? He's going to be the, the, this is our protagonist, the son of an old man named Jesse. Let's see how he lines up against our antagonist. Verse 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. Okay. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Okay, so he's not the firstborn. Next to him, Abinadab, the second. And the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. So our protagonist is going to be a child, the youngest son of an old man named Jesse, who he's too young for combat, and he takes care of sheep. This is going to be our protagonist. I do not have a good feeling about this face-off. Now we're going to get these two into the same setting. <clears throat> for 40 days the Philistine came forward, took his stand, morning and evening. Twice a day, probably at the morning sacrifice and at the evening sacrifice, when the Hebrew people would have been sacrificing, he's showing up to make his proclamation. And all the men of Israel, including Saul, are shema'ing him twice a day. Again, a good question, a good lesson for us. What are the top voices in our lives? What do we shema? Is it whatever YouTube thing comes up next? Is it social media? Endless fear-mongering news channels? Is this what we shema? 
Is it just our own thoughts, our own agendas, our own wisdom, our own uh, insights, which are dangerous enough? God protect us from those. Do we take time to shma the word of God? Do we fill our ears with it? So let's take a second and consider where could we turn off a voice that is from the world and turn on a voice that is from God. Right now, the men of Israel and their king shmah the words of Goliath. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, verse 17, Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. We talked about, Paul has mentioned, <coughs> it's hard to get a real good read on Jesse and David's relationship. There are moments when it seems like Jesse may, uh, may respect and honor David. And there's other times when it seems strange the way, he, the way he treats him. He doesn't bring him for the anointing. How strange is that to not bring one of your eight sons when the prophet says, bring all of your sons? Like how, how weird. Um, on top of that, is that an undermining? On top of that, the fact that David is being a shepherd when it seems like Jesse's old enough to hire shepherds. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to do with that. This one again feels a little strange. Maybe none of this is for real. Maybe none of this is, is, is there. But this again feels strange to me. I'm imagining sending my maybe 11-year-old son halfway across the countryside um, to go take bread and cheese to his brother's combat zone. That just doesn't seem like that's likely to work out well. I, I, just, I'm, I struggle with what's going on here in Jesse's mind. Maybe the truth is that at 11, David was more of a man than I am and more responsible than I am, and that would be totally normal, And in which case I can totally wrap my brain around that. But here's where we are. Now Saul, uh, there's going to be a vital, vital lesson here for us guys. I think the main lesson today, and maybe the main lesson in this passage for me, Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Eli fighting with the Philistines. Verse 20, and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the commandment as a host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. Now, I, I really want everyone to focus in on this, including the kids, no matter how young you are. Kids, I want you focusing in on this as well. All of us for this message. All of us want to be, want to have a dare to be great opportunity. We're going to see next week how everyone in the camp, all the soldiers are fantasizing about being the one to take him down. They're all talking about it. But none of them are doing it. And this, this is what strikes me. This, we all want that opportunity. But the question is, are we willing to be faithful and obedient to the little things that God has in front of us right now. That lesson came only more to life for me. David gets told by his dad, hey, take some bread and cheese to your really important brothers. So what does David do? David rose early. He made sure his sheep were well taken care of. Kind of different than Saul taking care of Kish's donkeys, isn't it? Jesse's sheep are in good hands. Then he did exactly what his father instructed him to do. He just followed his dad's instructions. He obeyed his parents. This is a key converse. This is a key moment. This is constant and it's vital. Do we know what the will of God is? Honestly, church, most of the time, we do. Most of the time, we know exactly what God would have us do in a given situation. There's plenty of times we don't know his plan. And 
Praise God we don't. If, God, if I look back on my life and God had shown me the plan, I'd have run screaming for the hills a long time ago. So I'm glad God doesn't show me the plan. But to, to show me, if, if you go, hey, Chris, what would something God would have you do right now if you were being faithful? I never wonder. I always have an answer. Oh, I, you know what? I'd, I'd do this. Right. This is something God would have you do. Something small, something insignificant. It doesn't feel like facing a giant. What we do, he has something for us to do right now. And by the way, if you don't know what God's will for your life is, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you at the end of the service. But for now, let me communicate this as clearly as I can. I want you to consider something that you do, some of the things you do that no one knows about. I want you to consider some of the right things, a right thing you do, a boundary that you draw, a chore that you take on, changing diapers, doing laundry, taking care of the kids, paying your taxes, serving your clients well, being faithful to work hard for your boss, to look after the interests of others when they're only looking after their own. These little faithful things, these little tiny righteous decisions. We are ministers and ambassadors first. Every little living out of our identity Every little obedience to our king. Every little following of our rabbi. It turns out that everything we do, the little corners we don't cut, the little compromises we don't make, the little extra step to do the thing that we need to be faithful to do that's in front of us right now. Obeying our parents, serving our Lord, taking care of one another, Everything we do and everything we say can be an expression of our identity in Him. Our identity as His. The Apostle Paul told the Colossians in 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything. The next section, next week we're going to look at is an account that is so cool and such an epic expression of the power of God and the power of just one, even a child, the willingness to trust God and be faithful. It's an epic battle that has gone down in history. Here we are 3,000 years later talking about it. But here's what I want us to learn today. This epic battle is won right here in the passage. This is when the battle is won. David takes bread and cheese and in doing so, dooms Goliath. David is wrapping up some bread and cheese and doing so with the kind of faith that brings down giants. That's what struck me. The little dumb things that we do that seem so insignificant, following what God has called us to do, that is the faith that dooms this giant champion killer. This epic battle is won here in a little boy being faithful to the little thing that God has sent him to do. David packing up bread and cheese, he is practicing the little faith that God uses to bring down giants. As little David is following his father's little instructions, Goliath is already toppling. This stood out to me this week. It is ours to be faithful. It is his to do miracles. That's how this works. Sometimes we even get to see it. Most of the time we don't. In preparation for this Sunday, um, I got to have, God sent me something this week that was clearly in preparation for this Sunday. This is a miracle. 
No doubt about it. So <clears throat> um, 30 years ago, when I was a student minister in Fort Worth, um, we would give the seniors who graduated a Bible. And, uh, and one year we had a, uh, an exchange student from Scotland named Peter. I have a picture of Peter. Um, and so Peter was an exchange student from Scotland, and he, was a, he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. Brilliant young man, but he was a smart aleck rebel. And, and I remember when it was time to write in the back of the Bibles, and we would divide them up among the youth ministers, and we would write in the back of the Bibles. And I, I really did not like writing, writing stuff in the back of the Bibles, because it seemed to me like a big waste of time. Um, this, this, I'm thinking to myself, this kid's never going to read this Bible, and he's certainly not going to read the note that I put in the back of it. And if he does, it's not going to mean anything to him, right? I mean, I'm writing my heart out here, saying what I think God wants me to say to this kid, knowing that this is spitting in the wind. And it just seemed like a waste of time. But my boss said, we're writing notes in the back of the Bible. So I'm going to write my heart out and do the best job I can writing in the back of the Bible. And signed it. Chris. Um, Monday, Peter found me. We've not talked in 30 years. He's been looking for me for the last 20 of those years. Just signed the name Chris, right? How are you going to find me? Here he is now. Next picture. He's a missionary, um, and he goes and trains pastors in, uh, in Africa and teaches them. Um, and he's been looking for me because he spent 10 years exactly as we thought, in just straight rebellion against God, just living up everything he could to live out rebellion against God. And then to quote Peter, there came that day when he looked down into the trough and, realized, and he came to his right mind, and he said that he had two Bibles. One was one given to him, I think, by his grandfather, who he, who he deeply admired. And he said he reached for that Bible, and he started reading it, and God revealed to him. He, just, he did the thing. And God revealed to him that God was there and present and speaking to him. And then he found this Bible, next picture, which was the one that I gave him 30 years ago. And he read the note in the back, and it, and it challenged him. And he's been sharing it for the last 20 years with different audiences about what's back there. I'll share some of that maybe someday if it works appropriately. This is the point I'm making. This is not, I, I was faithful in something I didn't even want to do. I wonder if that's how David treated the bread. I can't believe I got to say bread and cheese out there. Why always telling me what to do? It's, oh, get to pick this and put it over there and take that and put it over. Just look, Dad, always, hey, go pick that up. and Right? Is that what David's thinking? It doesn't matter. David is faithful to obey in that moment, and God destroys a giant because of it in that faithful moment. And we can't underestimate that. That to me is super powerful. And I believe it's a miracle that this week of all weeks, Peter, after 20 years, uh, found me. Um, this is the epic adventure of the Christian walk. Thousands of small steps of faith. And periodically, giants. If you're a faithful, by the way, be prepared. One of these days, a giant may show up. Um, that's what we look for. If you will, stand. I hope you will join. If you're not part of this walk, if you're not part of this life, or you're not living it or walking it, my prayer would be you would join us in walking this epic Christian adventure. And as we are where we are right now, my hope would be if, if you have, don't know this God who will take our tiny faithfulnesses and turn them into miracles, um, I pray you get to know him this morning. If you've already been through our welcome home process and you're ready to join our dysfunctional church, I hope you'll come forward and do that as well this morning. I want to read to you, now that we're standing, I want to read to you from the Word of God, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians from chapters 4 and 5. 
For this is the will of God. I told you I'd tell you. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. We ask you, brothers, in respect to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, to esteem them at, at, at very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The very words of God.